Oh my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict iron jaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. Blank is the killer. Hello and welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I, your best friend, possibly killer dog, Josh Baker, cover six new-to-me horror movies with a random spooky topic seven at the end. This episode features casket casting, sobering documentaries, and deadly hairballs. Come over to my big old mansion and audition for this movie I'm making while I tell you about other ones. Number one, Curtains, 1983, directed by Richard Kiepka. Six women are invited to a man named Straker's mansion to audition for the role of a crazy woman named Audra. A woman named Samantha thought she was getting the part and even had herself committed for a while, hoping to bring more authenticity to the role. One girl is killed before getting to the mansion by someone wearing an old lady mask. At the mansion, the mask killer takes more lives as Stryker tries to sleep with all the ladies. Samantha kills Stryker and one of the girls after finding them sleeping together. The masked maniac kills more people. Samantha and one remaining girl, a comedian named Patty, are in the kitchen. Samantha admits to killing Stryker and one of the girls. Patty admits to killing everyone else before also killing Samantha. Patty ends up in an asylum where she performs as Audra. Samantha and Patty are the killers. Curtains, aka Brunettes the movie, every single girl that makes it into the mansion has the same color brunette hair. Some have very similar styling. All of them were hard to see given how dark the copy Amazon has to stream is. It was incredibly difficult to follow what was going on since I could barely make out what was happening half the time. Curtains was watched for the third Blood and Bone. It's a new Twitch live stream series I've started where you can come hang out and watch a movie with me on Monday nights at 7 p.m. Central. All you need is a Twitch account linked with Amazon Prime. I wish the copy of Curtains on Amazon Prime wasn't so terrible. It was streamed in 4.3, but the provided cut was supposed to be cropped. Seeing a yellow boom mic pop up throughout the movie was fun though. The darkness of the copy made distinguishing who was who and exactly what was going on difficult. The terrible quality of the stream video aside, how was Curtains? Curtains is a wild ride. The movie jumps all over the place. In the beginning, we hang out with Stryker and Samantha, who at the time really seem into each other. They work together to have Samantha committed so she can do more research to play a crazy character named Audra. Then the movie jumps around to other girls who are invited to Stryker's mansion for an unconventional audition. You'd think that the movie would introduce the final girl around 
this time. A blonde actor is given a lot of screen time, so I thought that maybe she'd be the final girl. She dies before she even gets to the mansion. A very creepy doll is shown in her house. It doesn't appear to be hers because later on when she's driving to the mansion, she sees the doll in the middle of the road. The doll acts as a bear trap and latches on to Blondie, giving the killer enough time to commandeer her vehicle and run her over. The whole driving to the mansion bit was a dream though, and Blondie is just stamped to death by the killer when she wakes up. I guess the unsettling doll was always hers and the killer decided to take it with them. The doll only appears one more time in the movie buried in the snow. It then disappears for the whole rest of the feature. I don't know if someone wanted the doll to be there whenever there was a kill and forgot about it or what. At the end of Curtains, I realized why we were never introduced to a final girl character or even a prominent protagonist. Only the killer lives. How's the gore? Almost completely forgettable. There is a decapitation that leads to one of the girls seeing the dead girl's head in a toilet, which was fun. Other than that, no other gore sticks out. Stryker and his lover are shot through a window, but when the aftermath is shown, the picture is too dark to make out anything. The acting? I'd say all the acting is a bit hokey. There's an agent character who I really like that was played by Maury Chaikin. I wish his agent character was more prominent. Stryker was played by John Vernon, whose performance reminded me just enough of Vincent Price for me to wish it was Vincent Price instead. Samantha was played by Samantha Sherwood, who like everyone else in the movie isn't amazing. Sherwood found the character poorly written and took the gig as a paycheck, which helps explain things. I definitely agree with her since no characters are fleshed out. Killer comedian Patty was played by Lynn Griffin, who also played Claire Harrison in Black Christmas. I didn't recognize her. To be fair, she has a plastic bag over her head for most of Black Christmas. Production was hell, and director Kupka quit part of the way through, leading to Peter Simpson, the producer, taking over. Kupka is credited as Jonathan Stryker since he didn't want his name attached. The original ending would have Patty doing her stand-up for all the corpses instead of fellow asylum patients. That would have been a much stronger ending. Curtains is a mess. I had a fun time watching it with people as we chatted and scratched our heads, but even so, I don't recommend Curtains. Consider checking it out if you're a slasher fiend that's seen everything else. Otherwise, skip it. Number 2, Horror Noir, A History of Black Horror. 2019, directed by Xavier Neil Bergen. Members of the black horror community talk about the history of black horror. They talk about early racist portrayal as villains in films like Birth of a Nation, the importance of Night of the Living Dead having a strong black lead, the black exploitation era and how some of those films were detrimental while others helped with representation, the 80s born trope of the black character dying first, the rise of prominent black characters in the 90s, and modern black horror like Get Out. No one is the killer. I decided to do a horror documentary double feature with Horror Noir and the next section's Scream Queen. 
Horror Noir brought up a lot of interesting points about black representation in horror. I found it interesting that Birth of a Nation was brought up as being a horror movie. I totally understand it, though. If the Ku Klux Klan are the heroes in a movie, that definitely sounds like horror to me. If you find yourself thinking, America isn't all that racist, a film where the KKK are heroes was the highest grossing motion picture of all time until Gone with the Wind came out, which depicts racism from the Civil War era. I had a brief stint in film school and learning about the success of Birth of a Nation was definitely eye-opening. It was even screened in the White House. What were you thinking, Woodrow Wilson? I was not surprised to hear that one of the most important films of all time when it comes to black representation is Night of the Living Dead. It's a movie that will definitely be one of the first things that pops up in a horror fan's head when they're asked to name a movie with a strong black lead. Romero says Dwayne Jones was cast as the lead character Ben because he was the best actor that auditioned. I was always curious if the ending of Night of the Living Dead always had Ben being killed or if it was rewritten to make a statement on race. I couldn't find any conclusive evidence that the script was changed. Romero never wanted the movie to have a happy ending. Blaxploitation films then became the forefront of the conversation. Exploitation is an inherently negative word, so it's no surprise that not everyone was thrilled about the representation in that era. Some specific, more positive examples were talked about, which included Sugar Hill, Blackula, Scream, Blackula, Scream, and Ganja and Hess. But even then, only two of the films, Blackula and Ganja and Hess, had black directors. The only black exploitation horror film that I've seen is Blackenstein, which was one of the less favorable examples. It was included when talking about a shift to having the monster be a black man that was experimented on, which mirrored the Tuskegee Syphilis Experiment, which was a study done by the United States Public Health Service from 1932 to 1972. The gist is hundreds of black men who were suffering from syphilis were duped into thinking they were getting medical aid when in fact they were being monitored so that more could be learned about the effects of untreated syphilis. At the time, the general consensus was that syphilis needs to be treated due to the severe consequences of it not being dealt with. Yowzers. I'm hoping I don't have to tell any of my listeners this, but Black Lives Matter. Right now, protests are going on around the entire United States. Systemic racism is very real and has to be faced. Do what you can to help. Peacefully protest, donate, educate others. Do anything you can. Surprisingly, the 90s were brought up as a time where better black representation in horror started. Sure, there was still a problem with having the black character be someone that would help and sacrifice themselves for the white lead in a lot of movies or be a random character that could explain supernatural events but black representation was definitely on the rise tales from the hood came out in 1995 it's an anthology that tackles a lot of serious issues in the black community before watching horror noir i ignorantly thought tales from the hood was something like leprechaun from the hood so i'll be covering tales from the hood a bit later on Horror Noir ended talking about how black representation is continuing to improve with films like Get Out and The Girl with All the Gifts. 
Horror Noir is a great watch for anyone. Even if you're not a fan of horror, it provides a lot of interesting history and context. I myself need to watch more black films. Number 3. Scream Queen My Nightmare on Elm Street 2019 directed by Roman Chimienti and Tyler Jensen. Mark Patton, the star of A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, talks about his life as a gay man, the AIDS epidemic taking people that were close to him, having to stay in the closet in Hollywood, and how Freddy's Revenge ruined any chance of him ever scoring a lead role again after making him look like he couldn't play straight due to the film's not-so-subtle subtext of being a gay movie. David Chaskin is the killer of Mark Patton's career. Chaskin wrote the script, which he recently admitted to being intentionally gay. Mark could have continued acting as more of a character actor, but decided to give up acting after Freddy's Revenge. Scream Queen was shown at the Fantastic Fest I attended. I didn't end up catching a screening, but did go to a drag show that doubled as a birthday party for Mark Patton, who seemed very nice. I didn't approach him or anyone famous at the festival because I'm awkward and didn't want to be a bother. The party was great. It featured amazing queens like Peaches Christ and Louisiana Purchase. There was also a Freddy Krueger head cake with rainbow layers on the inside. Scream Queen is more of a story about being gay in Hollywood in the 1980s than it is a movie about a nightmare on Elm Street. I learned a lot from this documentary. Did you know that actors on TV shows back in the 80s were blood tested for AIDS? I sure didn't. From what I gathered from Scream Queen, it seemed like being gay in Hollywood wasn't something as taboo as it ended up being in the 80s until the AIDS epidemic changed everything. AIDS made being out bad for the careers of gay actors. Mark wanted lead roles which weren't possible after Freddy's Revenge in the 80s. Gay actors needed to be able to play straight in order to score lead roles. Horror Noir made me think a lot about black representation in film, which in turn is making me also think about the representation of gay men in movies. Currently, if you are watching a mainstream movie that has a gay character, nine times out of ten it is a lesbian with a throwaway line about their girlfriend that can easily be removed for stupid countries that still have problems with gay people. Avengers Endgame had a gay man in one of the support groups that was easy to edit out for China. I can't think of any mainstream movie that general audiences would have seen that has a gay male lead. There are Oscar winning pictures like Brokeback Mountain, Moonlight, and Call Me By Your Name, but I can't think of a single blockbuster that features a prominent gay male character. Horror has always been progressive. While I didn't love Hulu Into the Dark's Midnight Kiss or the new slasher The Ranger, I will give those films major kudos for including prominent gay characters, with the former having a gay male lead. Scream Queen isn't a documentary about gay representation in Hollywood though, so I guess it's time to get back on track. Mark Patton is shown to have an amazing outlook on life. After being ousted as gay in the spotlight that was Freddy's Revenge, he disappeared. He believes that his disappearance from Hollywood really helped him beat his later illnesses, including HIV, since his struggles 
weren't paraded around like his former lover, Timothy Patrick Murphy's, who sadly passed away from AIDS. Mark's grateful that he's now back in the spotlight, healthy and able to be a voice for the gay community. The one thing that Mark wanted out of Scream Queen was to confront David Chaskin about purposefully writing gay undertones that weren't subtle in the least into the movie. Mark does get the confrontation, but I didn't find Chaskin's apology sincere in the least. Chaskin did have a fair point that the director of the movie, Jack Shoulder, should have also been held accountable for the end product. Shoulder was in the documentary and pretended to be aloof in regards to everything, which was honestly more infuriating to watch than Chaskin's crappy apology. Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street is a documentary that is worth your time. Should you watch A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge first? I think you should because you'll get a little more context. Number 4, Suburban Sasquatch. 2004, directed by Dave Wascavage. A plane-skipping Sasquatch goes on a killing spree in a suburban neighborhood. Tala, a hunter whose ancestors have been taking down Sasquatches for generations, tracks the beast. She's accompanied by a reporter named Rick. The duo have many run-ins with the Squatch, where Tala hits the Bigfoot with magic arrows. She never hits the heart. During one last encounter, Tala is almost defeated by the Sasquatch, but she's saved by Rick, who plunges an arrow into the beast's heart. Tala and Rick then go on the hunt for Sasquatches together. The Suburban Sasquatch is the killer. I first learned about Suburban Sasquatch from Red Letter Media's series Best of the Worst. They loved the movie so much they dedicated an entire episode to it. With them giving it such high praise, I also like the movie, right? Right? Oh uh, yeah, it's an experience. Is there any reason for it to be more than 70 minutes? God no. Would I have liked it even more if its runtime wasn't close to 100 minutes? You better believe it. There are lulls in the movie, but the complete insane in the membrane wackiness that are the Sasquatch attacks make up for them tenfold. You have to watch Rick, a pathetic loser journalist, try to con some money out of a dude that runs a paper before Rick's even written an article. It's important to the plot, right? No, not really. I could have done without that 10-minute back and forth. Suburban Sasquatch isn't a perfect movie, that's obvious. What issues did I have with it? Did I dislike the worst CGI I've ever seen? The same two Halloween prop limbs popping up every 10 minutes. Laughably terrible acting or meandering plot? Nope. All that was great. Well, I guess some of the meandering plot could have been cut out to make the movie a bit more succinct. But the big thing I hated about Suburban Sasquatch was loser boy Rick and that he ends up with badass warrior Tala at the end. Subsass was part of my new Blood and Bone series, where I watch a movie with anyone that wants to stop by Monday nights at 7pm Central on my Bonesaw Baker Twitch channel. Sorry for chilling it every two seconds. Since I was watching with some others, I can proudly say that we all didn't want Rick to score a smooch from Tala. 
when they did start making out, it looked like it was shot in a way where there was no actual lip contact. So, good for Su Lin Sanchez, who played Tala. She's one of the only decent actors in the movie. Note that I did not say good. Sanchez and Juan Fernandez II, who played a security guard or something, were the only two people whose acting wasn't abysmal. I wish Fernandez played Rick instead of the human that looks like a sentient blob of mayonnaise, Bill Ushler. Bill, that was mean of me to say. I think you'd look normal if you were styled differently. The receding hairline with what you have left pointed down your forehead that looked like an attempt at knockoff misfits cosplay, paired with the what are those worthy shoes? I hear the kids say that phrase. And the beige tall boy T, don't scream main character that ends up with the attractive warrior to me. Now that I've dogged on Rick for an acceptable amount of time, here are things I loved about the movie. The aforementioned terrible CGI. I love the digital blood pouring out of people and the Sasquatch. Tala's multiple CGI spirit birds were endearingly awful. I love the bad CGI head removal where the head is still on the victim's shoulders when the body is shown again. The same Halloween prompts being used over and over became a hilarious running joke. Whoever decided that the Sasquatch could teleport by jumping into different planes of existence is a goddamn genius. The sound design is perfect. If perfect means so shinily done that just hearing something like the Sasquatch's screams, which are the same sound effect repeated and layered on top of itself, elicits a laugh. Did it need to be implied that the Sasquatch was trying to forcibly create a spawn with women he scooped up and imprisoned in his cave? Nope. That didn't even have anything to do with anything. Did it take me multiple times of the movie cutting to a random moonshot, then to an obviously shot during the day scene, to realize the moon signified that it's night now? You betcha. Suburban Sasquatch is a feature-length train wreck that should be checked out with your friends and beverages. If Troll 2 is S-tier so bad it's good, I'd say that Suburban Sasquatch belongs in the B-tier, which is still recommended territory. To be clear though, the movie is a technical catastrophe. Free your mind and let Subsass take you on a magical journey. Number 5, Tales from the Hood, 1995, directed by Rusty Kundiev. Three gangbangers go to confront a funeral home owner who found a bunch of drugs. The owner starts telling them stories about corpses in the home. The first story is about a cop who watches other cops beat up a good black politician. The cops lie to the rookie and say they will take the politician to the hospital, but they kill him. A year later, the spirit of the politician asks the rookie to bring the cops to him. The spirit then kills all the cops and the rookie goes insane. Next, the gangbangers learn about a boy who had an abusive father figure. The boy defeats the abuser by drawing him on paper, then folding up, crumpling, and lighting the drawing on fire, all of which is then inflicted on the abuser. This is followed by the tale of a racist politician named Duke. After moving into a plantation house, Duke and his campaign manager are killed by dolls inhabited by the souls of dead slaves. The last story is about a gangbanger named Crazy K who is arrested for murder. 
He opts into a rehabilitation program, but won't change his ways. He's sent back to where he was supposed to be killed by three gangbangers. The same three that are at the funeral home. They're in hell. Cops, dolls, and gangbangers are the killers. The dolls killed Duke's black campaign manager who was helping racist-ass Duke, but the campaign manager and Duke didn't technically kill anyone themselves. I know, I know, boo me for putting the dolls on the list. Tales from the Hood covers a lot of heavy subject matter. Racism, abuse, police brutality, murder corruption, and gang violence. The evil people end up getting what they deserve, but the anthology still makes you feel bad by reminding you that the world is filled with all of this horrible stuff. It's crazy that an anthology that came out 25 years ago is still as relevant as ever. Cops haven't changed, racist politicians haven't changed, domestic violence still happens, and gang violence still exists. Seeing barely any progress when it comes to the police and racism in politics is depressing. There seems to be a lot of momentum against the police currently, and all it took was for everyone to have a video camera in their pockets. Even still, police brutality is rampant when the cameras are rolling. There should also be no way that Donnie is re-elected, but four more years of ass hattery wouldn't surprise me. I know podcasts are a place to escape the world, especially the world that is 2020, but silence isn't the answer. Donate to causes that are aiming to defund the police and end systemic racism. Also vote. No one wants to vote for Joe Biden. If he's elected, I wouldn't be surprised to see him wearing dark sunglasses as he's propped up by two helpers, doing their damnedest to make him look lively. At least Joe Biden's weekend at Bernie's corpse isn't anywhere near as deplorable as the other option. It would probably smell better too. Back to talking about Tales from the Hood now. It's full of great practical effects. One cop melted into being part of a mural. I wonder if the creators of Velvet Buzzsaw were inspired by that. The abusive mom's boyfriend guy's limbs folding like paper until he's turned into a crumpled mess is practical and fun. All of the creepy dolls that attacked racist-ass Duke were real, and the puppetry is fantastic. When the puppets have to walk on their own, it doesn't look perfect, but it's not the worst. There is some heinous CGI in the movie. When the funeral homeowner reveals that he's the devil, a horrible-looking CGI reptile tongue sticks out of the gap between his two front teeth. This is then directly followed by more bad CGI. Prosthetics and makeup effects were used to turn Funeral Man into the devil. This is how he should have been revealed. We get a shot of the three gangbangers with terrified looks on their faces. Funeral Man's shadow is cast over them and starts to grow. Then we get a shot of devil form Funeral Man in all of his practical glory. We don't need to see the classic fiery hell. Seeing a giant demon who informs the trio that they are in fact in hell would have been sufficient. Clarence Williams III played the funeral director Devilman, and his performance is awesome. He's definitely the standout actor of the whole anthology. David Alan Greer was also on point as the horrifying abuser. All the actors in the movie are solid, barring maybe the gangbangers who came off a bit hammier than everyone else. Tales from the Hood has its intentional comedic moments, but for the most part, it's a movie that covers some heavy subject matter that's scarier than anything in horror, since it mirrors real life. 
definitely check out Tales from the Hood. Number 6, Good Boy 2020, directed by Tyler McIntyre. Judy Greer is a baby crazy 39 year old who just had her salary position at a newspaper turned into a per article contractor role. She wants to freeze her eggs, but the change in income no longer allows it. Judy adopts an adorable little dog to help her cope. The dog is named Reuben after stealing a sandwich of the same name. Reuben accompanies Judy on an online date that ends with the awful mystery man dead. The cause seems to be hit and run. Judy then finds her crampy landlord dead. Judy pieces together that Reuben is killing her enemies after he poops out a finger. Judy starts hiding the bodies. She writes articles about the happenings that do well, but her boss doesn't give her fair pay and fires her. Reuben fires him from life. Judy becomes the new boss. Judy starts dating a cop. Cop pieces together that she's the killer. Reuben kills Judy's friend who won't leave when asked, and then the cop boyfriend when he shows up. Judy's arrested, and Reuben gets a new owner. Reuben is the killer. Reuben, the cute little pup, turned into a bigger monster dog when it was time to kill. Tyler McIntyre has directed two movies that have popped up on Pumpkin Harvest Ripe Lists, Tragedy Girls, and Patchwork. Luckily, I didn't put it together that he directed Good Boy until after seeing it, or I would have set my expectations too high. Since I went in with the correct expectations for a Hulark installment, I ended up highly enjoying Good Boy. I would go as far to say, Good Boy is the best Hulark has to offer so far. I love the original Puka, but that's more of a good bad movie. Good Boy is actually solid. Turns out when you get a competent director and a human and dog that can act, your Hulark movie can be good. Chico the dog is fantastic as Ruben. He's as cute as a button and never misses a mark. Judy Greer is great as... Maggie? That's it, Maggie. Greer brings the perfect level of awareness and chops to the absurd role of Killer Dog Mom. Ellen Wong, who I always remember as Knives from Scott Pilgrim, also pops up as Maggie's friend and isn't bad. I didn't find any of the acting to be terrible. I believe that the same bar location has been popping up in almost every Hulark movie this year, and it does indeed appear in Good Boy. I'll keep my eyes peeled to confirm that that is the same bar in the future. I love that Maggie leans into Ruben's killer side. Why not let your dog take out people you don't like? If my dog Skeletor could murder, which deep down I know he can, if he was killing jerks, I'd be cool with it. The kills in Good Boy are mostly off screen. If the action isn't shown, at least the gory practical aftermath is, and it looks great. Bad dates, mangled body in the street, landlord lady's disemboweled corpse, Reuben rips out boss man's throat on screen, which is accompanied by a beautiful blood splatter. Friend is dragged under the bed by Reuben. Maggie tries to help and pull the friend out from under the bed as blood begins to spill everywhere. I do wish that Maggie pulled only the top half of her friend or even just her arms out from under the bed. That would have been the cherry on top. I didn't like that Maggie started dating a cop. Neither did Reuben. It was nice to see the pig turn into a snack for the hungry little hairball. The score was basic and forgettable, but such is life when it comes to Hulark. 
Puppet Monster Ruben was shown enough to be effective, but still mysterious. There were genuine laughs that weren't at the movie's expense, which is a rarity when it comes to Hulu Into the Dark. Good Boy still isn't what I'd call true movie quality, but it's a breath of fresh air from the usual dumpster fire we call Hulark. Check out Good Boy, which is a good time. Remember, don't write articles about people your dog has killed, and don't ever date cops. Number 7. The Frame. 2020. A Story by Josh Baker. It was Thursday morning. Nothing about this morning was inherently special. Sure, the lazy bones nestled safely under a comforter, falling in and out of a delightful snooze, was able to do so without the threat of an obnoxious alarm blaring him awake, since work wouldn't be rearing its ugly head this day, but such circumstances popped up at least twice a week. As the tired boy relaxed his eyes, allowing them to recover from the onslaught of bright computer monitors, he dozed off for one last time before it happened. The incident was sudden, and without warning, there was nothing that the boy could have done to stop the chaos, to stop the terror. Across the room there was motion, swift, dangerous motion. A crash louder than anything the boy had ever heard in Dreamland drowned out the sheep and sent panic directly into the soul's core. After the initial destruction of silence, the boy disturbed it a second time as he lost control of his lungs and released a fearful howl. It wasn't the shrill scream you'd expect, but more of a cacophonous roar of all the air being expunged from the boy's body as a futile self-defense mechanism. He knew that death was imminent, but still hoped that his holler would bring aid or at least serve as a warning to others that could save them from the fate that was doomed to befall him. The boy gazed across the room, scanning for at least one quick glimpse of the entity that would suck the life from his shaking body, only to see shattered glass that had exploded after gravity cruelly yanked a framed poster off the wall. The boy had survived, unscathed physically, but forever shaken. After that fateful morning, he took it upon himself to double-check anything heavy that was mounted to the walls in the future. That's a wrap on Blank is the Killer 73, Casket Casting, Sobering Documentaries and Deadly Hairballs. I know I got a bit preachy in this one, but I had to say my piece on what's currently going on. The horror movie goofing ain't going anywhere. Big thanks to Sticker Fridge for hosting the podcast on their website, allowing it to creep into your dreams. Blood and Bone is still happening every Monday night at 7 p.m. Central. If you have Amazon Prime, link it to a Twitch account and tune into twitch.tv slash bonesawbaker to hang out. Episode 74 will be released on June 28th. It'll feature black exploitation horror and some horror comedies I recently heard about. Until then, make sure to stay away from areas known to be infested with planeswalking sasquatches. If you see one, you're already dead.